It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Happy 2024. Welcome back. Hope you had a great weekend. Hope you had a great holiday. Hope you will have a happy and healthy new year. You know, 2023 kind of got a bad rap. I mean, I couldn't help seeing a lot of these year-end pieces. It's like, good riddance, get out of here. It's a lousy year, and we hope for better in this new year. Um, but, you know, we also talked about 2024 so much last year. feels funny to say that. Uh, that I just wonder... It's shorthand for the campaign, of course. And now the campaign is inescapable. It's upon us. First, some breaking news. I got a New Year's gift a half hour before midnight from Donald Trump. Well, not really a gift, but it's a text message and a PDF file about how he did not lose the 2020 election. Now, when I first saw it, because it's got a lot of legal cases and footnotes and so forth. I thought, okay, this is what he was filing and trying to get it in before midnight, either in the challenge to Maine or the Colorado Supreme Court for knocking him off the ballot. But it's not a filing. It may become a filing. But whether or not he won the 2020 election is not the focus of the cases the Supreme Court would hear about 2024. Does he deserve on the ballot? Did the states go too far? Again, I have no doubt uh, the Supreme Court is going to leave him or order him onto those two state ballots and anybody else who does it. Okay, so here's what it says. Summary of election fraud. President Trump is pleased to forward you a report that is fully verified. Most of the information was gotten from government sources, tapes, and other public records and compiled by the most highly qualified election experts in the country. The numbers are determinative, and in all cases— are hundreds of thousands of votes per swing state more than President Trump needed to win that state. If the Republican Senate does not step forward and address this atrocity, it will happen again and be virtually impossible for Republicans to win elections in the future. Now, This is obviously a statement by the president and his lawyers. There has been no court of all the cases that were filed that has accepted his view that the 2020 election was outright stolen from him. His own Justice Department could find no evidence of anything other than minor irregularities. And by the way, there were minor irregularities in every election. And so... Let me read to you some of it. If I read the whole thing, we'd be here for an hour and a half. It has often been repeated there is no evidence of fraud in the 2020 election. In actuality, there is no evidence Joe Biden won. Ongoing investigations in the swing states, and this paper deals with five swing states, reveal hundreds of thousands of votes were altered and or not lawfully cast. Joe Biden needed them. On election night, President Donald Trump was sailing to re-election 
with landslide leads in numerous battlegrounds in Georgia. President Trump was up by 12 points and over 335,000 votes, with 56% of the vote in at 10.17 at night. In Wisconsin, President Trump was leading by 121,000 votes, I'm rounding them off, uh, and five points at 12 minutes after midnight, which Fox News anchor Brett Baer noted was not a small margin. In Pennsylvania, President Trump was leading by 659,000 votes at 12.38 a.m., a full 15 points. In Michigan, President Trump was leading by 293,000 votes and 10 points. And here's the key. The election was over. However, precincts in Atlanta, Detroit, Philadelphia, Phoenix, and Milwaukee kept counting until the results reached the desired outcome, which was the opposite of the will of the voters. Just one example here, and then we'll stop. Georgia went from having a total of 4.7 million votes, already a record for the state, according to Brad Raffensperger's count of November 4th, that's the Secretary of State, to certifying almost 5 million. This was 300,000 more votes than what the top elections officials claimed were cast in the election. Well, Raffensperger, who, by the way, got that famous call from Trump, I just need you to find me 11,780 votes. The state of Georgia sent out the day before the election a massive number of mail-in ballots. Now, that's criticized the way they did it. But in each case here, let me get to the bottom line. In every election of the modern era, big cities, which are obviously democratic cities like Atlanta, Detroit, Philadelphia, Phoenix, and Milwaukee, um, the final count comes in late. There are many more ballots to count. And especially in 2020 with the mail-in ballots, some of those weren't counted until very late at night or the next day. What's more, the media spent days telling you this was exactly what would happen. That President Trump would go out to an early lead over Joe Biden. And he did by these counts of anything from 121,000 to 659,000. But that didn't mean that he had won the election. That, that that would then be either matched, either, let's just put it this way, that would be either almost matched, matched or overtaken by all the late Biden votes. It's just the way elections work. And that is what happened. In fact, Joe Biden, if you remember, there have been recounts and hand recounts in a lot of these contested states. What President Biden did was surge with all the late returns and, uh, and ended up in the hard vote count beating Donald Trump by 7 million votes. Electoral College, a little closer. So I give you this in the interest of equal time. Uh, I'll, I'll close this section with this. Lindsey Graham, Donald Trump's best friend in the Senate, was on TV the other day and he said, if Donald Trump focuses on the past, he will lose. If he focuses on the future, 
Uh, I think he said it was very likely that he will win. But Trump not taking Graham's advice. Trump is still litigating this. Uh, and what he really should do is pivot to talking about 2024. And the first task up is filing with two courts, ultimately SCOTUS, to get himself back on the ballot in Colorado and Maine. Two weeks until the Iowa caucuses. But before we get to that, and yes, we, uh, we did our job Sunday on uh, Media Buzz. I had an interesting interview with uh, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, who says both the media and many of her fellow Republicans uh, are persecuting her, bullying her. might be worth checking out. And we also did all the latest political news. One thing that caught my eye from New Year's Eve, I confess I was not watching Dick Clark's primetime year, New Year's Rockin' Eve with Ryan Seacrest on ABC. It's interesting Dick Clark, of course, is no longer with us, but he still gets to keep his name on the thing. Um, Ryan Seacrest probably more popular than Dick Clark ever was. Anyway, Green Day, extremely popular band, was one of the performers, and the lead singer, while doing the number called American Idiot, changed some of the lyrics. In the original, it goes, well, maybe I'm the F blank, 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 America. I'm not part of a redneck agenda. Now, everybody do the propaganda and sing along to the age of paranoia. But as rendered on New Year's Eve, what Green Day sang was, maybe I'm the F America. I'm not part of a MAGA agenda. So taking a little swipe there at Donald Trump, as performers seem to enjoy doing. Just thought I'd pass that on. I do have some such to catch up on. I mean, it's amazing how much has happened in the last few days. Donald Trump kicked off the main ballot by a single Democrat, Secretary of State, who, by the way, not a lawyer, not a member of a court, just, and is, you know, certainly an acquaintance of Joe Biden's and attended his convention as a delegate and just said, you know, screw this, 14th Amendment, you're out. There's no question this is headed to the Supreme Court, and in my mind, there's very little question the Supreme Court will overturn it, that and Colorado, but we shall see. What I did want to start with is a piece from the Miami Herald. Story number one. This is Nikki Haley, who has been embroiled for days in this slavery controversy. For those of you who maybe took the week off or don't have a television, uh, the former governor of South Carolina asked at a New Hampshire town hall what do you think was the cause of the Civil War? You know, it's a layup. It's a piece of cake. Said, well, it's, it has to do with the role of government, and it has to do with uh, freedom, and what people could and couldn't do. Well, as I said on the air, and as I said on Martha McCallum's show on Friday, what they could do 
was own other human beings. And it just was so obvious that she was flustered. She got a second chance to answer it. She said, what do you want me to say about slavery? Of course, by the next morning, she's totally backtracking. Of course, I just took it as a given. Of course, slavery was the cause of the Civil War. Yes, of course. Why she didn't say that in the first place has a lot to do with her not thinking it would play very well with a bunch of MAGA Republicans, speaking of MAGA. But since then, you know, there was also this fascinating little exchange with a nine-year-old boy who called out Nikki Haley on the avoidance of the word slavery and said, you're a flip-flopper like John Kerry. Remember John Kerry? It's a famous part of the 2004 campaign where John Kerry says, I was for it before I was against it. Particular piece of legislation. But how does this nine-year-old kid even know about John Kerry since he's born, I don't know, 10 years later? Anyway, while she was out campaigning, again, back in New Hampshire, uh, another questioner during a town hall actually uh, phrased this as, I'll give you a chance to redeem yourself after the slavery controversy. And this person said, would you be able to say categorically that you will not accept being Trump's vice president? And Haley said, I could say to you what you want to hear, but I'm going to continue to tell you my truth. President Trump and I worked well together. Why? Because I told him the truth. She, of course, was his UN ambassador for two years. What she didn't say was no. I will not be Trump's running mate. Uh, she wanted to say, if you want to know, we want to talk about vice president, I will tell you this now. I've said it before. I don't play for second. I've never played for second. I'm not going to start now. So that gives you the impression. Well, actually, all it does is give you the impression that Nikki Haley is not running for VP. But clearly, she didn't want to rule it out. You could see the wheels turning. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not running for vice president. Of course, with Donald Trump at 52% in Iowa, way ahead of Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, that's according to the latest Fox Business poll, and also ahead in New Hampshire, which would be a good state for Nikki Haley, there could come a time when Trump, as the nominee, decides he needs a woman, maybe doesn't want to go with the Carrie Lake kind of candidacy. Um, you know, Nikki Haley is not just a woman, but of course a groundbreaker in terms of running for president, being of Indian American heritage. And Trump says, will you be my number two? And she obviously wants to reserve that possibility. Does she want to be vice president? No. Does she want to be on a ticket with Donald Trump after saying, you know, he brings chaos, he was a good president for the time, but not now? Well, I'll tell you what she doesn't want to say. She doesn't want to say no. There's absolutely no way I would ever run with Donald Trump. But she didn't say that. 
So if, if uh, that questioner in Lebanon, New Hampshire was looking for a uh, disavowal, he did not get it. And at another point in the last few days, Nikki Haley said that if she does become president, and the other her other rivals have said a version of this too, she will pardon Donald Trump. At least that would apply to two of the four indictments, since the other two are state cases in New York and Georgia. Now, why would you volunteer that now? Maybe because you want Trump's, some of, you can't obviously get them all, but some percentage of Trump's diehard supporters to think, well, you know, I do kind of like Nikki Haley, and this way at least Donald Trump won't go to jail, so I'll vote for her now. But you know what she would be doing, and I know the whole rap of the Republican Party is that these are all, forgive the expression, trumped up charges, never should have been brought, no way of saying that he uh, was part of an insurrection, no way of blaming January 6th entirely on him. The classified documents case, as I've said many times, is much more of an open and shut case, in my view. But she would pardon him for that as well. And look, that's what Jerry Ford did with Richard Nixon when he succeeded the 37th president. And major factor, in my view, that Jerry Ford did not win an election to a full term after Watergate. But she's sending a signal. Yeah, I would pardon him. She's volunteering it. Nobody is pressing her on it. She wants the world to know she would pardon Donald Trump. Says that would be good for the country, which is the same rationale that Ford used. Meanwhile, Donald Trump has been warning his supporters that they can't get complacent. The poll numbers are scary because we're leading by so much he said on his uh, most recent trip to Iowa, obviously he's going back before the caucuses, the key is you have to get out and vote. Don't sit home and say, I think we'll take it easy, darling. It's a wonderful day, beautiful. Let's just take it easy. Watch television and watch the results. No, because crazy things can happen. Now remember, the polls showed Trump, people forget this, leading the Iowa caucuses in 2016. But of course, Ted Cruz won the caucuses, probably had a better turnout operation, and Trump charged him with cheating. There was never any evidence that Ted Cruz was involved in cheating in the Iowa caucuses. But crazy things can happen, and it's true. Do I see Trump losing Iowa? I think it's extremely unlikely. And look, Trump's been to Iowa a few times. He hasn't camped out there the way some of his opponents have. Iowa's supposed to be the good state for Ron DeSantis, while New Hampshire is a place where Nikki Haley uh, would do better. Trump, again, we already have the votes to win. All we have to do is turn them out. Well, forgive me for observing that that's true, in every election, you may well have a lot of support. People don't show up at the polls. They don't go to the high school gyms 
for the caucuses where you have to commit to three hours of staying there on a cold winter night. That's a bigger bar than just going into a uh, voting booth during the day where you're in and out. So, of course, Trump wants to get his base fired up and make sure they turn out, even though he probably thinks he's a shoo-in. And we'll see what happens. But, you know, it's a hard place to poll. As good as the Des Moines Register poll is, it's that extra level of commitment where you have to spend the three hours, where you have to, you know, listen to speeches by your neighbors. So that's why I've never been in the camp of, you know, it's an absolute slam dunk. Do I think Donald Trump will put away the primaries and caucuses fairly early in the process? Yeah, I do. These poll numbers aren't crazy. I mean, he's even beating Nikki Haley in South Carolina, which is the third important early contest. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. All right, let's move on. Number two, Michael Cohn, Trump's longtime lawyer, longtime fixer, who then turned on him, went to prison, finally got out of prison, I believe during the pandemic. And he acknowledges, he, he acknowledges that he was guilty of the crimes he was charged with. But now... I'm looking at a Washington Post story. Michael Cohen had to f- do a new court filing saying that, and this is really bad. I don't know what the consequences will be, but it's really bad. Saying that he unknowingly gave his lawyer bogus case citations. You know, when you file a legal brief, you say, well, as the court ruled in you know, Marbury versus Madison... Obviously, you'd use more uh, recent citations. He gave him BS legal citations as part of what became the filing to end his probation on tax evasion and campaign finance violation charges. Campaign finance charges were related to the whole Stormy Daniels situation. Cohn says now, and this was unsealed just this past Friday, that he used Google Bard, an AI chatbot, to generate case citations that his lawyer could use to assist in making the case to shorten his supervised release. Remember, he pleaded guilty to these crimes back in 2018. What happened was he was forced into doing this because the federal judge in New York that was hearing the case said in an order in December, we just didn't know about it, that he could not find any of the three cases cited by Cohn's lawyer. And he asked for a thorough explanation. How did these cases come to be included? What role, if any, did Michael Cohn play? So just digest this for a minute. Michael Cohn used artificial intelligence to come up with what turned out to be 
fake cases that actually, you know, were part of the reason he got sprung from this supervised release. And Cohn's explanation is basically, I was a dummy. Uh, he said he had not came up with, uh, kept up with emerging trends in legal technology and didn't realize that Google Bard was an AI service like ChatGPT that could show citations and inscriptions that looked real but actually were not. He just thought it was a supercharged search engine. At least that's what he says now. Cohn did say that his lawyer, with the lawyer's paralegal, never raised any concerns about these citations he had passed along. Quote, it did not occur to me then and remains surprising to me now, says Michael Cohn, that the lawyer, Schwartz, would drop the cases into his submission wholesale without even confirming they had existed. Well, apparently he did. Didn't do the due diligence. He would have caught it and substituted real cases. Now, Cohen is expected to be the star witness in Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg's case against Trump on the Stormy Daniels business. Also an indication, as the Washington Post points out, of how common AI is becoming in legal casework, which experienced lawyers would know that you can't take it to the bank, so to speak, if you use AI and it says, well, here are some cases. I, you know, I don't understand. AI is this brilliant new technology that's going to change the world and possibly endanger all of humanity. And yet it makes stuff up. Now, will it be doing that a year from now, two years from now? Maybe not. Well, who knows? But this has got to be embarrassing for Michael Cohen. And I suppose could even come up as a way of undermining his credibility. If indeed he remains the star witness in the Stormy Daniels case in New York, which I don't even think should ever have been brought. Neither does Donald Trump. No question about that. So that's the latest on Michael Cohn. Which brings us to story number three. A stunning surprise announcement by Israel yesterday, New Year's Day, that it will begin withdrawing several thousand troops from Gaza, at least temporarily. Never done this since the war started. And the reason is, at least in the view of the New York Times, but it's just common sense. There's a really growing toll on the Israeli economy during these three months of war. And the Israeli military called up thousands and thousands of reservists and, of course, you know, sent many of these total troops who were already serving in the army and who who were on uh, reserve duty into battle against Hamas. So what happens is many of those people, in order to fight the war, had to leave their jobs, whether it was running a store, working for a high-tech company, teaching at a school, you name it. 
And that means there are a lot of vacancies in the Israeli workforce right now. So it is springing. Um, ultimately, will be at least two brigades and another brigade taken back for training. Each brigade is about 4,000 troops. So at a minimum, Israel will be pulling 12,000 troops out of Gaza. Now, this also happens to come at a time when pressure from the Biden administration on moving to a new phase of the war, where, by the way, there aren't so many civilian casualties in Gaza, whatever the actual number, and I don't trust Gaza's numbers, but it's, you know, a humanitarian crisis. So this serves two purposes. Maybe it eases up a little bit on world pressure, but particularly American pressure against Bibi's government. And it actually comes out and says the Israeli military, this move is expected to significantly alleviate economic burdens and enable them to gather strength for upcoming activities in the next year. Bibi still says we want to eradicate Hamas. Bibi still says we're going to be in this war for many more months at least. Israeli economy expected to shrink by 2% this quarter. That's a lot for an entire country. Israeli officials have said they intend to transition to a new stage of the war with more directed attacks against Hamas. Unlike the two airstrikes that Israel had to essentially apologize for, hurting its reputation further in the world community by saying we dropped the wrong bombs. And they were aiming at if you can just sort of visualize a set of buildings that was, according to the Israelis, uh, a center of command for Hamas. But then there were adjacent buildings which were not supposed to be blown up where civilians were taking shelter. And look, I give credit, uh, Israel credit for admitting its culpability there. It doesn't make it any better given the lives that were lost. So is this the beginning of a temporary new phase, a permanent new phase? Is it really just to shore up the economy? I don't know. But increasingly, although Netanyahu claims it remains his goal to completely wipe out this terrorist group, increasing skepticism from the media, from critics within Israel, certainly from within the U.S., that that may be an unrealistic goal. And yet, Netanyahu keeps repeating it again and again and again. Okay, related story about the Ukraine war, where Russia, obviously angry about Ukraine crippling one of its uh, battleships and also a death toll within Russia itself from Ukrainian missile strikes, has just been pounding away deliberately at apartment buildings, and places like that where you know there's no, you know, Israel doesn't embed its fighters with civilians. That's purely a Hamas terror tactic, using its own people as shields. So this story tells us that when the war began, Vladimir Putin signed a censorship law that made it illegal to, and this was the word, discredit the army. 
Uh, New York Times says legislation was so sweeping that even Putin's spokesman acknowledged it was easy to cross the line into prohibited speech. In the first 18 months of the war, the law scooped up a vast array of ordinary Russians. We're talking school teachers, pensioners, groundskeepers, a car wash owner for punishment. More than 6,500 cases of people being arrested or fined, 350 a month on average. That's based on Russian court records. It's a small percentage, obviously, of Russia's overall population of 146 million. But it just shows you how pervasive this law has been, the way it's been interpreted. And this really gets me. It gives you great insight into Russian society. You can even be prosecuted for a private conversation if somebody else informs on you, informs on their fellow citizens. So that's why he gets minimal resistance from people at home who oppose the war. Estimated to be about 20% that don't support the war. But of the other 80%, roughly, are they saying it because they fear that not saying it, just simply not supporting the war, or talking in private to a fr- or somebody you think's a friend who then reports you. And you can be prosecuted, you can be jailed, you can be fined. Uh, I just find that uh, very reflective of the Kremlin mentality. All right, number four. So I shared with you, I think it was on the last podcast of 23, the story about the chancellor at the University of Wisconsin. Joseph Gao. And how the university fired him said that he had engaged in abhorrent and disgusted conduct. And that conduct was making X-rated videos with his wife. Basically, who cares if it's in private, but then posting them on various porn-related sites. Now, I thought, okay, the guy's been there a long time. He, for some reason, thought he wouldn't get caught. They didn't use their real names. And he's gone, and he will fade away. But Joe Gao, I've seen him on TV several times. He's put out statements. He is opposing this. And he's saying, wait for it, it's a violation of his free speech. That the regents never specified which policy he violated, did not give him a chance to defend himself at this hastily called meeting, according to the Washington Post. He is surprised that videos of consensual sex with his wife, whose name is Carmen Wilson, have run afoul of standards in a university system that just six years ago adopted a, sweep, adopted a sweeping new policy on academic freedom and freedom of expression. You know, apparently they have filmed and written books about free speech, about sexuality, about relationships. So Gao telling the Washington Post they're overlooking some very clear free speech protections. People who care about free speech should be very concerned about this situation, he says. It could happen in other areas as well. Maybe they're not interested in adult sexuality, but it could be something political or something social. And we have the ability to disagree. Another way he put it was the actions taken, oh, his wife, 
Carmen Wilson says, put it more succinctly, free speech is free as long as it aligns with their values. Their values meaning the values of the people who ultimately are in charge of the University of Wisconsin. And this has happened to others, not necessarily in a campus context. In Virginia, I remember this, a woman running for the State House of Delegates faced a backlash after performing sex acts online for tips. Gow doesn't know how the videos featuring him and his wife came to the attention of the school's Board of Regents. They're publicly available on lots of adult websites. It's something we enjoy, and this guy goes on and on, that enhances our relationship. And we found the people we work with to be extraordinarily open and supportive and professional. They're not violent videos. But i got to differ with his reasoning. If you hold a public position of some prestige, whether it's in the political world, whether it's at a major university, yes, you may have the free speech right to do it, but if that embarrasses the university, if that is humiliating to the university, I think when you become a university chancellor or a member of Congress or a member of the state legislature or other jobs similar to that, you give up certain rights because you are so high profile that it's not just personally embarrassing to you, but it is, in the view of many people who don't share his view, extremely embarrassing and injurious to this college's reputation to have this be so public. It's the public part. Do whatever you want in your spare time. But to post it publicly, that's taking a risk with your career. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. And let's close out this first podcast of the new year with story number five. The Daily Mail obtained a copy of a new book by Patty Davis, of course, Ronald Reagan's daughter, in which she just goes after her mother, Nancy Reagan. Apparently they never got along, but it's very much a mommy dearest book. Here's the lead, for example, in the story. Nancy Reagan convinced future President Ronald Reagan to marry her, she was his second wife, after getting pregnant by him in 1952, according to Patty Davis. Now, she doesn't have absolute proof of this. She says, I tend to doubt that getting pregnant was a result of carelessness. That her dad, having been married to his first wife and gotten divorced, was happy playing the field and not exactly anxious to get married again. Now, it was Kitty Kelly, the celebrity biographer, who, con- who reported that Reagan continued to date an actress named Christine Larson and that he had told her, according to the Kitty Kelly book, that he had been tricked into marriage by Nancy. Uh, so then we get to the really ugly stuff. So bad was home life in their Pacific Palisades house that Patty Davis said she often got high and much later considered suicide. Patty states that life at home was stiff and strict under her mother's rule while her father was loving. She writes, it's kind of in the form of an open letter to her parents. 
I never stood a chance with you. The intractable war between you and me, Mom, kept brewing off into a boil. It was a dark tide moving beneath us. She describes her mother, a future first lady, of course, during Reagan's eight years presidency as being ambivalent and cold, a woman of formidable ranges who had a serious negative impact on Patty's life. Patty claims Nancy withdrew her affection from her because she felt Patty was a difficult baby who demanded too much attention and spit up too much. Well, how would a baby know that? And does that sound realistic to you? So fed up with her throwing up that uh, she withdrew her affection? She does say here that she didn't know until she was eight years old that she had half-siblings, a brother and a sister, Michael Reagan, later radio talk show host, Maureen Reagan, also famous in her own regard, from her father's first marriage, not until Maureen once visited. Meanwhile, Michael, who Reagan and his first wife, uh, Jane Wyman, had adopted, was 14 when, out of the blue, he came to live with Patty's family and was treated, treated miserably by Nancy. Nancy was furious that Ronnie had a whole other family before her, which she knew when she married him. Wouldn't give Michael his own bedroom. He slept on a living room couch. You know, oh, my, my reaction to this is just, I, this is odious. I've always kind of liked Patty Davis. She's written pieces that I've thought were th interesting, fascinating, thoughtful. But why go there? They're both gone. Other than making money, other than this makes you feel better. Let's say everything she says is true. And she had a miserable time. Why go there? You can't even be said to be settling scores. I mean, you are on one metaphysical level. But I just don't see the reason to trash your famous parents. And had Ronnie, as Nancy called him, not become president later on, or even governor of California, nobody would care. Nobody would care what Patty Davis had to say. So I think she's trading on her family's fame, her apparently still active anger at Nancy. And Patty Davis is 71. At what point do you just let go? Well, thanks for joining us in this first podcast of 2024. Hope you'll come back for more. Even if you weren't listening before, you can subscribe at Apple iTunes and a bunch of other places. And now that the New Year's holiday is over, I will even deign to come back tomorrow. See you then with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.